And now we're going to hear from um, Kathy as she comes to read to us from the Bible. It's Matthew chapter 20. For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire men to work in his vineyard. He agreed to pay them a denarius for the day and sent them into his vineyard. About the third hour he went out and saw others standing in the marketplace doing nothing. He told them, you also go and work in my vineyard and I will pay you whatever is right. So they went. He went out again about the sixth hour and the ninth hour and did the same thing. About the eleventh hour he went out and found still others standing around. He asked them, why have you been standing here all day long doing nothing? Because no one has hired us, they answered. He said to them, you also go and work in my vineyard. When evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, Call the workers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last ones hired and going on to the first. The workers who were hired about the eleventh hour came and each received a denarius. So when those came who were hired first, they expected to receive more. But each one of them also received a denarius. When they received it, they began to grumble against the landowner. These men who were hired last worked only one hour, they said, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the work and the heat of the day. But he answered one of them, Friend, I am not being unfair to you. Didn't you agree to work for a denarius? Take your pay and go. I want to give the man who was hired last the same as I gave you. Don't I have the right to do what I want with my own money? Or are you envious because I am generous? So the last will be first, and the first will be last. This is the word of the Lord. So we're looking at the parable of the workers in the vineyard. And this would have been a very typical scene with very familiar elements to those who first heard the parable. But there are surprises which make a powerful point. Now the background to this is the symbolism of the vineyard. The vineyards, as you probably realise, are very common in Israel. And as well as tasting nice, wine was used to purify the water. So you would take, for example, six uh, parts water to one part wine. Uh, You're not likely to get drunk on that. And probably at at, uh, the the, the wedding um, that Jesus went to at Cana, that um, they'd have started off with the cheaper stuff. And then you probably would have got the full-blooded stuff towards the end. So anyway, Israel, as the people of God, was likened in the Old Testament to God's vineyard. You get it in Isaiah uh, 5, for example, where we have this song. I will sing for the one I love, a song about his vineyard. My loved one had a vineyard on a fertile hillside. He dug it up and cleared it of stones and planted it with the choicest vines. He built a watchtower in it and cut out a wine press as well. Then he looked for a crop of good grapes, but it yielded only bad fruit. The song is a pretty intimate, uh, has a pretty intimate tone. 
But despite all his tender loving care towards his people Israel, they disappointed him. So in the parable, God is the owner of the vineyard and the Jews are his people. Well, let's just recap on that parable so we have it clear in our minds. It may have been, uh, well, have been harvest time. The vineyard owner may well have needed extra labour to harvest those grapes. The normal working day would have been 10 hours, starting at 6am, just after the sun rises, and they would have had breaks, and it finished just before dusk at uh, 6pm. And the day rate at that time for a skilled labourer was a denarius a day. So this is a generous rate for unskilled fruit pickers. If you're of a certain age and you lived in certain places, you may well have had summer holiday jobs picking cherries or strawberries or whatever uh, to earn a bit of uh, money. So he goes down to this first century Palestinian equivalent of the job centre the marketplace where casual labour gathered and uh, they would be hired and they would be paid at the end of a day's work. After all, they were living hand to mouth. And the Old Testament in Leviticus and Deuteronomy, God reveals something more of his compassionate nature by stipulating that they should be paid at the end of the day. And that was really how... um, how the docks in Britain 60 years ago operated. The stevedores would go outside the dockyards and hire however many dockers they needed for the day to load and unload the ships in the port. But no work, no pay, no pay, no food. The vineyard owner gets up early and he's down at the job centre at 6am to hire And then he comes back again at 9 o'clock, at noon, at 3 p.m. And at 5 p.m. when there's only an hour left to go before knocking off time. So this employer is rather surprising. He's different from the others. First of all, he offers a more than generous day rate. Secondly, he goes repeatedly. He goes four times to the market square to hire those who have not so far that day been able to find work. He didn't have to employ them at all. Verse 15 points out that he could do whatever he wanted with his money. But he did. Such is the gracious nature of our God. And come the end of the day, when the foreman pays off the workers, we see something else that is surprising. They all get paid the same. So the five PMers who'd been hired for just an hour, they get a denarius. The three PMers who'd been hired for three hours, they get a denarius. The twelve nooners who'd been hired for six hours, well, they get a denarius. The nine AMers who'd been hired for nine hours get one denarius. And the six AMers who'd been hired for twelve hours get a denarius. They've all done the same work, but they've done it for different lengths of time and in varying conditions. You know, it's quite pleasant to actually be outdoors in, the, in Israel at five o'clock in the afternoon and very early in the morning, six or seven a.m., for example. But between, 12, between 10 and 4 p.m., 
in the summer it can get very hot indeed, believe me. I've worked in Israel for three months, mostly outdoors in what was a gap year before there were such things in the summer of 1973. And it's not surprising, is it here though, that the people grumble. It's understandable from those who have put in a full day's half hard graft through the hottest part of the day and the most thirsty part of the day, that they are miffed, that uh, they are getting considerably less than, well, they're getting the same as somebody who's actually just done one hour. And Jesus says to them, friend, and when in the Gospels Jesus addresses somebody as friend, he's offering a mild rebuke. Because on each of those times, he reckons they're in the wrong. And it was the case here. He points out that they agreed the day rate at the beginning. It's been a generous rate, and he's paid them for it. The word envious here, or begrudge in the ESV, is literally in Greek, is your eye evil? It was an idiom for jealousy. So what is the point that Jesus is trying to make here? Now we saw last week in uh, the previous chapter that Jesus had been quizzed by a respectable, religious, rich young man. He asked Jesus, verse 16 of chapter 19, what good thing must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus answers, there's only one who's holy, who's good. And if you want to enter life, obey the commandments. The rich young ruler claims that he's done so. What more can be expected of him? And Jesus says to him incisively, sell all and give to the poor. But that proves to be too much for him because we read that he was sad because he was very rich. Which prompts Jesus to say, I tell you the truth, it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. In fact, he suggests that it is easier for your biggest animal that you know of, which would be a camel, to go through the smallest hole that you can see, which is the eye of a needle. He's, of course, not speaking literally. He's figuratively speaking with a high degree of exaggeration to bring his point home. And the disciples are astonished. They say, verse 25, well then, who can be saved, they ask. And then Jesus gives the punchline, with man it is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Now the thrust of that dialogue is that there is no way a human being can buy their own way into heaven. If this guy thinks he can actually obey all the commandments, well, dream on. He might have avoided outwardly not committing such acts but he'd have failed if he's honest with his internal attitudes no way he's lived up to God's expectation even if he were to give up all his wealth he still could not buy a place so then how is anyone going to get eternal life if they can neither earn it by moral merit nor buy it by generosity And the answer is that God will have to give it to you. 
And what is impossible for human beings, getting their moral and spiritual guilt removed, is not impossible for God. But we have to look at it from God's perspective. Otherwise we won't understand the situation. Because God has a problem. How, as the judge of the entire universe, can he be both just and punished by death, exclusion from the presence of God, and manage to justify, declare free from guilt, those who are guilty, so they can come into his presence. They can be at peace with him. There can be harmony with one another. But it's a problem that he had foreseen and prepared for long before he ever created the universe. God, Father, Son and Holy Spirit had it all worked out. Sin would be punished, but God himself in the person of Jesus would voluntarily suffer that punishment. And so he came in human form. Being divine, he was perfect and deserved no penalty and so was a perfect substitute for us. Being human, he could represent us. So with sin properly punished, the just judge of the universe can set about giving away salvation, eternal life. And that explains why in the parable of the workers in the vineyard, that the owner, God, goes about giving everyone the same, irrespective of how much time they had put in. Now who was Jesus speaking to? He had a number of audiences when he was sharing this parable. There were the Pharisees, the religious fundamentalists, real brownie point collectors, very fastidious in their literal external obedience to the law. And they were contemptuous of the common people who were not so compliant. There were the Jews, who for 2,000 years had taken flack for being God's people. And now Jesus has come and he has in mind to bring in the Gentiles, the people who'd given them such a hard time. But he is, I think, primarily speaking to his disciples. Now the previous chapter, 19, ends with the disciples still with a lot to learn, saying, we have left everything to follow you. Implying they are still in the works rather than the grace mindset. They think that by giving up everything, they will somehow get them, get for themselves what had eluded this rich young man. But oh no, it's not cause and effect. It is not graft, but grace that results in the reward of eternal life. There's a lovely word of assurance of needs met, given to the disciples, and eternal life. They... uh, They say, Jesus said, and everyone who has left houses, brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or fields for my sake will receive a hundred times as much and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last and many who are last will be first. Now this first, last, last, first is also the way that our passage this morning ends. In chapter 19, you would have expected the respectably religious rich, like the young man, because wealth in the Old Testament was often a sign of God's blessing. 
rather than these poor old Galilean fishermen, who do you expect to bring up the rear? But it's not just poor Galilean fishermen Jesus has chosen. You know, he clearly went out and uh, helped centurions, helped the Lebanese lady, helped others who lived outside of the land of Israel. Amongst his disciples, in addition to a number of uh, not-so-well-off fishermen from Galilee, he had uh, a former tax collector. That's a real outcast of society. He had a zealot, which is just another name for a terrorist as far as the Romans were concerned. And even Judas, his name gives hints of, uh, of people who were noted for their stealing. But no, the order is reversed in the kingdom of heaven. He's highlighting that eternal life is a gift. And those you might think would be first in line turn out to be last as they just don't get it. You see, you cannot earn salvation. It is a gift whether you are a lifelong believer or a deathbed convert. So applied to us, we may have been cradle Christians brought up in a Christian home. We may have had the example of really good and godly parents who were a Christian-focused family and who may have actually given up quite a lot to further the kingdom of God in their particular situation. And we may have followed in their footsteps. It may have been hard. It may have been really tough when you're faced with peer group pressure. And you may have made certain sacrifices. You may have been members. For example, not that I've ever heard anybody think like, well, I wouldn't have heard them think, would I? But um, I've never heard anybody even express a remote term about those who were here when we built all these facilities 25 years ago and that they went through the adventure of faith and the giving, and then other people come along who've not been involved in it and reap all the benefits. I've never heard anybody think like that, but if they had, it would be an example of how these disciples of Jesus were then thinking. But if you were in a commercial partnership, like architects and dentists are, then if you were a new partner, you would have to buy yourself in so that you shared in the cost of establishing the partnership. That would be fair. But here we have guys getting the same benefits as those who have put in anything up to ten times more than them. Being human, we might be tempted to grumble when in fact we should be overjoyed that others have come to share with us God's grace and the gift of eternal life. So if you've been early adopters of the Christian faith, then uh, we should be grateful that we have been given eternal life. And if out of gratitude we have uh, been grafting away, making sacrifices to grow the kingdom of God, then we should be overjoyed and not in any way resentful or jealous of the late adopters who get the same benefit, but for less effort. And we will need that kind of attitude among us if in these challenging times we see many of our contemporaries maybe for the first time realise just how dependent we are. After all, it's only four months ago 
apparently on the 17th of November, when the first person got this COVID-19. And in four months, it's virtually covered the world, and it's spreading, and there's a limited amount that we can do about it. It does rather make us see life from an eternal and a supernatural perspective. We do recognise that we are dependent. It does humble us, and if we're humbled, we might start to look up. So look out for those who are coming to that realisation and steer them in the right direction. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you once again for the teaching of the Lord Jesus who turns things upside down. We pray that we might clearly grasp the fact that the gift of forgiveness of sins and eternal life and a relationship with you is purely by your grace and us being humble enough to ask for forgiveness and to believe in that you can provide it. And we pray that we might be alert in these days ahead to those who are um, more anxious than us, who have no sense that anything's, uh, that there's anybody in control of everything. We pray that we might, by our example and by our words, be able to direct and steer them to the one who can be completely dependent upon yourself. Amen.